Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. This week in the studio, we have Michael Kimmelman from the New York Times. What did you guys talk about? So most people right now are probably aware of him as an architecture critic. I actually think he's more of a social commentator, discussing why architecture in the built world has vast implications on culture, on society, um, showing the value of things that can impact everybody, whether it's a public square, social housing, things like that. I'm sure he had some pretty interesting things to say you know, regarding time, these buildings tend to stick around for a while. Oh, for sure. And he, he has a very distinctive perspective on time. He's an accomplished pianist, for example. He's been working at the New York Times since 1990. He grew up in New York City, so he's he's spent basically his entire life, aside uh, from, you know, a period in, in Berlin, living here. So he, A his, city that's changed so much. He has really seen up. it. Yeah, I mean, he grew up in Jane Jacobs' West Village kind of world, obviously that's that's changed. And we talked a lot about his upbringing here and how he's seen the city change. Uh, funnily enough, we even talked about his father, who is sort of this radical leftist, uh, who had a conspiracy theory that the New York Times is run by the CIA. Mm, interesting. Ironic, given that Michael is now, you know, one of the Times' most accomplished writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to hear this. Let's get into it. Michael, welcome to Time Sensitive. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start the conversation actually about your first lead that you wrote in the New York Times in 1987. <laughs> I don't know if you remember it. I'm sure I don't. <laughs> you were writing about an all-finished concert uh, at the Christ and St. Stephen's Church in New York, and the sentence was, or is, time has generally been a good editor. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, it'd be a great way to start the podcast with this being the 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 sort of thing to bring up because, well, this is a podcast about time. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not so unhappy about that uh, that start. That's interesting. Yeah, I think just as a phrase that you know, time has generally been a good editor. Yeah, is probably more relevant than ever in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I think look. It, Time is a pretty good editor. Um, we have to curate, you know, what we uh, what we want to remember and uh, and what we don't. I should say what we don't want to forget. You know, we do live in a moment. It's hard to avoid saying this when people, you know, barricade themselves in fortresses of selective memory and or try to uh, ignore what they don't want to face, uh, you know, happening now or in historically. So um, I don't think time is an unhindered uh, determinant of of what we uh, edit and what we should edit. But it's, it's on, on the whole, in terms of creative stuff, I, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it certainly has allowed us to appreciate an evolving series of things because it has allowed us to return to things uh, which have dropped out of historical memory mm. and for various reasons suddenly seem interesting again. That's very useful. We should have as part of our repertoire a whole range of things, uh, styles, thoughts, biographies, and so forth that um, didn't seem relevant in one moment but may now mm. seem relevant. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning here that you you studied history at Yale and later art history at Harvard. From that perspective, just thinking about history and the relationship to time, how do you bring that into your own work? Are you constantly thinking about history in, in your writing? I mean, 
There's no way to avoid the idea that, first of all, if you're writing something, you're presumably doing it with the idea that it doesn't just uh, – that it's not the classic fish wrapping, it disappears tomorrow. You don't – you hope that's not the case. Um, but quite apart from one's own uh, hopes for, for your own work, yes, I think everything is written against a historical backdrop. If you're doing it as a, a critic, you, you – uh, and it's not just historical figures. You're talking about contemporary artists or architects or musicians or whatever. You're trying to put that in some context, and that context is a historical one. Um, history is, of course, many different things. My original interest in history was because I didn't really feel I could understand the world now, social and political affairs, without understanding that context, without having some, not just historical knowledge, but some tools to interpret history and to understand how to extract from history the bits of information that would be useful to understanding today. Mm -hmm. the, the how did we get here? Yeah, how did we get here and how have we interpreted in the past events that are taking place in the moment? And are we, are we, are those useful tools for now? Or do we need to rethink uh, how we, how we interpret uh, creative endeavors or anything else? Mm. I think that's also part of the historical process, a constantly evolving sense of what's important and how we interpret what's happening now and, and what happened before. In your other life, you're a pianist and longtime student, or were a longtime student of Seymour Bernstein. Talk about that in relationship to time and sort of that is sort of a practice that you've had ongoing while also writing very prolifically for the times. Well, first of all, making music, especially, so I, I'm, I'm a, a classical pianist. So one of the Interesting things for me about that uh, is the way in which the things that I work on musically take a long time, in a way take a lifetime, to uh, to come to grips with, um, to learn to play, to, to understand one's relationship to them. It's, it's, it's never stops, in a sense. Um, and that, for a while, I stopped playing entirely. And when I returned to it, I think one of the things that was very crucial and that was absolutely essential to my balancing my work, and it helped my writing and helped my thinking as a journalist, and what was to work on things that were were long, that, that were not, you couldn't just finish off in a day or two, or a week, or even a month, sometimes not in a year or years, that sense of giving yourself over to something much larger than yourself that was endless was very important to balancing the work I was doing and is both the most humbling and inspiring thing about uh, making music, I think. There's also a physical aspect to it, um, which is another kind of, sort of counterweight to writing, which is a pretty solitary and... Um, you know, um, dull thing to do uh, physically. The, you know, I mean, making music, playing the piano is a physical thing. And when it's, when it's, when you're in the midst of it and doing something very beautiful, it's an almost erotic experience. Mm. It's so intense. The ability to move from that kind of activity, that kind of thinking to, to writing, I think has, has been very healthy for me. And when, I mean, you've performed a couple of times or a few, several times I've seen you uh, perform at Barge Music in, uh -huh. in Brooklyn. Is performing, I imagine it's quite a different experience than just practicing at home. Um, does, in some sense, is that sort of how you feel when you also publish a story? Is it kind of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you've been behind the desk or behind the keyboard for, or, or piano for a long time and, um, kind of crafting this thing and all of a sudden you're putting it out into the world. I mean, there is a thing about publishing, which is, you know, I have a privilege of publishing in a place like the Times, uh, which is, you know, about as much as a writer can ask for in terms of just getting it out in, in public. But of course, you know, you don't really know what it's, um, how, how people react to it. 
you get feedback. Um, and nowadays in social media, that's a good and bad thing. But it's very different when you are, of course, a performer going up on stage. I, I think another reason I returned to playing the piano um, and to performing was because I thought, and I don't mean this in some weird altruistic way, but I, I did think if I'm going to write as a critic, it's a very useful thing to put myself out there in a situation where I am subject to other people's judgments. Um, because look, anybody involved in creative endeavor is, if they're good at it and they're really doing it seriously, is putting their heart and soul on the line. And as a writer, one needs to bear that in mind, especially if you're wielding a giant stick um, like I am by virtue of the publication I work for. And so I think it's always useful to remember what it is like to be in that situation um, and to need to make yourself vulnerable. I do have to say that the the joy I feel playing in front of people and, and also playing with other musicians is something that is uh, not the same as the pleasure of publishing an article, which is pleasurable. But mm -hmm. um, there's something so immediate and intense, the feeling that you have from the audience um, and also the poignancy, you know. I mean, the thing about making music, which is different than, say, a painting or architecture or writing, is that it is disappearing in the instant you are making it. And so there is this sense that this thing you are doing, which is hopefully moving someone in your presence in some real way, is also disappearing in that same instant and will never come back. That that The immediacy of that moment can't be captured uh, even on film, um, much less in a recording. And I, I think that sense of that ephemeral beauty, hopefully, uh, is quite different than what you're doing as a writer, uh, which is to create something, as I said earlier, that you hope has some legs and you can always go back to. You quote something I wrote when I was a child. And, uh, you know, I, I think that even that sense of time, the, the, the sense that you write in one mode of time and you make music in a very different one, um, the, the balance between that is, is fascinating to me and has been, I think, very healthy. I'd like to circle back to young Michael Kimmelman growing up in the West Village. Uh, your, your father was a physician and your mother, uh, I believe, a sculptor. That's right. And they were both civil rights advocates and sort of activists. What was your childhood like and how did that lead you on this path toward art criticism, music criticism, architecture criticism. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a, like a comically cliched version of, uh, of a Greenwich Village family. I, I grew up in a family that was, you just can't get farther to the left um, <laughs> if you tried. And that was true of my immediate extended family. My uncle who lived and lived across the street. He was a of uh, well-known big union lawyer and uh, a poet, of course. Um, my dad was um, an avid reader of all sorts of uh, leftist journals, and um, he read the New York Times voraciously. I remember him sort of reading it with a pen and circling uh, articles and underlining things and cutting stuff out because he was absolutely convinced that the New York Times was run by the CIA. And if you could just <laughs> decode it, you would know um, what the military-industrial complex was really up to. Um, that whole thing um, gave me, I think, and I mean this quite seriously, a sense that there was a kind of importance to a public conversation, that what was written and what was being debated in these journals and newspapers and that that this mattered. And, you know, I, I traveled with my dad through Eastern Europe and um, to the Soviet Union. I went to v North Vietnam uh, at uh, when it was not um, legal to do so because mm. my father was uh, demonstrating surgery, uh, surgical techniques there. And... Um, so I, you know, I had the full-on sort of uh, indoctrination, 
And it wasn't that I believed exactly what my father believed. I, I, I never could quite buy into his view, say, of the you know, Soviet miracle. But I did believe that there was um, an importance to trying to participate in some way in a, in a public conversation. I didn't think about it a lot, but I think it stayed with me. And when I graduated from Yale, I was debating a little bit what to do and fell into a job as an editor uh, at ID Magazine. It was really by chance. And, you know, at the time, I guess the magazine was just so awful, they would hire somebody as uh, <laughs> inexperienced as me. But it was a fantastic experience. And now the magazine is considered a great sort of chic thing of the past. But it... At the time, it just gave me a footing in the world of journalism. And I remember the excitement of the first issue coming out that I had written something for. I hadn't worked for the school newspaper or anything. And just feeling that I was in the world. And so when I went on to um, to gr do my graduate work, which I chose to do in art history, not really because I was deeply devoted to art history, although I'd studied a lot and spent some time in Italy studying it and so forth. But really because it was at that time a field which the cutting edge of which was devoted to social history and a kind of um, attempt to situate cultural studies in a historical and political context. So it to me was interesting. I, I was pursuing it for the reasons I've explained, but I kind of had one foot still out the door in, in journalism. And I liked being in the world, and I liked that idea of a public conversation. I traced that back to my dad's weird <laughs> habit of circling the New York Times and, um, you know, and just conducting in the house with friends all the time. Was there a uh, art influence from your mom? Yes, my mother. I mean, there was. Um, my mother was uh, a wonderful sculptor, um, and I think that I... You know, I, I was I was a kid who I liked sports and I, you know, I wasn't a completely nerdy kid, but I also did love going to museums and I um and I remember having this sense of being kind of not just at home but having a place that I could call my own, you know, in the garden of MoMA or something in the way that I think a lot of New Yorkers did, but I felt that way as a kid and so there was, um, and I used to go with her to her studio. I, I think my mother was also very politically involved. She was one of the founders of Women's Strike for Peace and just, just a wonderful woman. But it was my dad, I think, who, um, with whom I had the most arguments. Um, <laughs> and so for whom that idea of um, debate, and we had people over to the house, all sorts of crazy people. It was probably the entire... McCarthy hit list came to our house at one point or another uh, for dinner or to hang out. And so, uh, yeah, it was a combination, I think, of the two of them. But when I think of my mother, it wasn't so much the political aspect, and it wasn't even so much that she and I had a lot of art discussions. I think it was just the fact that for her, art was a part of life. Mm. Um, and so for me, it, it seemed like a normal uh, thing just to look at it and talk about it and see it as part of the conversation about the state of the world. Mm. I, and I imagine those debates with your father probably were good practice for the criticism to come. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I, I can't say I ever came out of them satisfied. He was a very loving and wonderful man and a fantastic physician who had a deep kind of and beloved doctor. I, I say this as a devoted son, but also it's it's true. He had a thriving uh, practice, and um, and people really loved him as a doctor. And I always had a hard time reconciling what I thought were his his sort of quasi religious views about politics. This kind of a very um, patently un disprovable mm. feelings. Um, with his extremely scientific way of looking at the world. So our arguments were often about how could you possibly feel it that frustration I now comes to mind in our current era when it seems like it's impossible to have rational conversations with people. Sometimes I felt with my dad we just reached these impasses, but they were always healthy and and it seemed to me that that was 
what a, a fully lived citizenship involved as uh, these conversations and debates and with the health of the society at large at stake. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like right now we're in this moment where it's all about presentation. There's no real conversation happening. Everybody's kind of posturing. Yeah, well, one of the problems with social media, this is among other banal things I will say, it's certainly <laughs> going to be high up there, but let's face it, you know, there is this way in which everyone like, you know, just pees in their corner to mark their spot, but they're not really doing anything significant. And a lot of debate gets just uh, stuck at that level. Hmm. I can't even call it debate. It's just noise. You know, what we, we have to work our way through this, obviously, because there's something also very healthy and very useful about having such democratic access to uh, the spread of information. And as we've seen um, with the spread of videos and um, conflicts between the police and African-American communities and so forth, this is a whole new level of accountability, which is a very healthy thing. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's clearly a moment when the level of discourse has deteriorated profoundly, and that is just not good for, uh, for the kind of complex issues that we need to deal with now. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't look nostalgically back on the days when, I don't know, Hilton Kramer was the art critic of the New York Times. And, you know, there was this very sort of narrow uh, band of people who were allowed to give their opinions of things about whether it was culture or politics. But something in between, some curating uh, and maybe to get back to your original point, maybe time mm. will, will be the curator again in that case. Going back a little bit, you know, to 1990, you're, you're age 31 and you become the chief art critic at the New York Times. This is after having been a freelance critic covering music and, and art for them for a few years. What was that like? I mean, the, you were <laughs> replacing someone who was in his 70s. Yeah. Um, it was fairly terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I spent those first years, look, I, it was an incredible privilege and I was very, very lucky. And I mean that, absolutely. You know, you have to just have happened to have been in the right place and whatever. I, I spent the first few years just trying not to make a complete idiot of myself in public. And um, the, actually, there are two ways you can approach a, a position like that at that age. I think one is to try to make your mark by saying very bold things. And, and I... I think fairly consciously thought that was probably not a good move because you can't really take those things back. On the other hand, if you do what I think I think I was trying to do, which was, as I said, not get too many things too horribly wrong um, and sort of work my way into the job, it takes longer to, I think, uh, establish your, your voice, your bona fides. Um, you know, in the beginning, I just sensed that everyone – probably hated me and did, <laughs> was thinking, what the hell is going on? And some people did. And I remember being so um, sensitive at that time to that feeling. I just thought, you know, I was young and I was just trying to do my best. And why aren't people, you know, uh, being nice about it? I, that's how naive I was. Some of those people who were critical of me at that time or questioning that decision, I have to say, have become or became very close friends of mine, which is a funny thing about time as well. But at that time, I, you know, I was I was just trying to keep my head above water, and it was it was thrilling. I mean, it was scary, but really thrilling. Um, I was not prepared in the sense that I had not really been steeped in contemporary art. Look, I hadn't really intended to become an art critic. I just kind of fell into that job. Mm. So everything about it was was new. And I had to familiarize myself with a contemporary art world that um, uh, I was definitely an outsider in. Um, that had its advantages because I didn't come with too many um, debts or preconceived ideas. But it also came with obvious disadvantages. I, I had to catch up pretty quickly. Mm. Um, I was fine dealing with historical materials. And I had an inclination to do things which now seem normal, but at that time were um uh new <laughs> but like well i a couple of things i would say um 
I wanted to, you know, the Times still had a relatively narrow view of what we covered, um, certain galleries and certain museums, and the art world just seemed like a bigger place to me. It was expanding, and that also included the range of art. So we were very Western-focused. I wanted to make sure that we covered things that were non-Western, non-traditional. One reason I sought out um, Holland Cotter as a freelance at that time was to try to beef up our coverage in areas that um, we had not really been very good at covering. You know, there was a lot of resentment in the art world, um, even though what happened under those under me in those first years, I'm proud to say, is our coverage expanded enormously, and we created what was then a whole new section, the weekend section devoted to art with its own front uh, page. and um, But there was complaining in the art world, and that was because a lot of galleries that had been used to being covered regularly were now um, getting covered much less regularly because a whole lot of new galleries were hmm. getting more coverage. Um, I wasn't alone, of course, in, in doing this, and um, but I'm – I'm glad in retrospect that 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 was one of the things that happened um, at that time. Um, That blowback, you know, I was also contending with. Now, I think people would think it's insane if we didn't cover um, such a wide range of things. We we need to cover an even wider range, probably. Mm. I think on this subject, it's interesting to bring up your book Portraits that came out in 1998. In it, you, you... follow artists into all these different cultural institutions. Sometimes, uh, I mean, in one case, there was a, a strike. So you couldn't actually, that was with Cartier-Bresson, right. couldn't actually go to the museum that he wanted to go to. Right. Or even the second museum he wanted to go to and ended up at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, exactly right. Yeah. Then there's, there's you go with Francis Bacon to the V&A, Elizabeth Murray to the Met. What was fascinating was these are contemporary figures at the time, or, yeah. or I mean, in, in the case of Balthus, a very uh, old man at the time. Yeah, some of them were quite old. Yeah. yeah. But you're, you're taking these living, let's say, contemporary figures into these institutions of, of deep history, really, um, and kind of showing this contrasting approach. Was that kind of what you were doing at large at the times? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, but I would say this that project, which grew out of a series that I started at the Times, had several functions. One was to find a way for me to uh, interact with artists whom I respected or was interested in. And that, by the way, wasn't just old white guys, Cindy Sherman and Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, Kiki Smith. And Kiki and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was a range, and that was also the point. But I wanted to find a way that I could interact with them that was seemed to me uh, not social, but uh, constructive. <laughs> so selfishly, I wanted to learn from them about how they looked at art. Mm. Um, I thought that was a good thing to do. And in a sense, to bring in more voices um, to the paper about how one thinks and looks at art, thinks about and, and looks at art. Um, but it also began as a kind of Rashomon project. The idea was that we'd all go to the Met and uh, essentially because every artist looks very selfishly at the, a collection like the Mets for, for good reasons, that every one of them would look differently at essentially the same thing. And that that itself was an important lesson because it would say, look, there is no single correct way to think or think about or look at art. Here's all these range of artists who are showing you a million different ways of looking at the same thing. That should be liberating for you um, when you think about art or creative endeavors generally. And finally, also because I realized that artists who talk about their own work have a kind of packaged spiel, um, but that if you get them talking about the art that has influenced them or that interests them, then they're actually giving you their biography in a much more open and interesting way. So it was selfish for me. <laughs> I thought it was good for readers, and it was another way of writing kind of profiles. And I enjoyed it enormously. What happened was all, many of the artists simply just had other interests. Richard Sarah wanted to go to... MoMA, and then uh, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of artists in Europe, and obviously it wasn't going to be in the Met, and so the 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 Rashomon thing of the Met came apart, but the principle was the same, and, and um, I I love doing that series, and I I think the book, uh, which expanded on that quite a bit, 
is something that's still I'm uh, not only proud of, but I think has has use um, because I think the way they look at things remains they remain interesting artists, and the way they look at art <clears throat> continues to be instructive for us. Yeah, as, as someone born in the 1980s, reading it in retrospect, you know, seeing Balthus and Cartier-Bresson, these characters who I only became aware of later in life after they had died, it's also a kind of time capsule. It's Absolutely, this, yeah. Yeah. I had, I mean, I cannot claim to be the first person who thought of that idea, by the way. I believe it was Pierre Schneider, who back in the 50s or early mm. 60s or something, did a similar project with artists at the Louvre. And um, I'm pretty sure the Met also later like it did, mimicked yeah. this idea with a video it, series. It did. <laughs> yeah, it's still my idea. I guess it's allowed. Um, <laughs> but I'd stolen as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in 2005, you did another book, The Accidental Masterpiece on the Art of Life and Vice Versa. What's really refreshing about that book is that it's sort of more of a primer for people who aren't necessarily as well-versed in art, but those who are really well-versed in art can enjoy it too. Yeah, that's good um, to hear. There were some sentences in it that I pulled out that I wanted to bring up on the podcast because I found these sentences to be really meaningful or, or poignant even now. And um, the first one is, to live intensely is one of the basic human desires and an artistic necessity. Um, this idea of living intensely, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's essential to the entire uh, idea of creative work. Um, it's it's a little bit what I was saying earlier about performing. If you you, you have to be in the moment uh, to perform in some way that's going to get across to other people what you what you really want and feel. But I think intensity is um, a kind of you know it's. It's one of the basic requirements of doing something creative because a, a true creative act somehow pushes the boundaries of what is normal. I, I don't mean it has to be groundbreaking or something, but just doing something routine is almost by its nature not terribly creative. Um, but trying to uh, do something creative requires, I think, a certain sacrifice, a certain commitment, a certain um, vulnerability, mm. um, and all of those things create a state of intensity. It's it seems to me uh, the, almost the most essential thing about about uh, creative endeavors. Another sentence I pulled out is about shock and awe, and you write when nothing is truly strange or foreign any longer, everything having been predigested. We then demand to be shocked, shock being an experience that still seems genuine to us. Thus, we mistake shock for awe. I think in this current moment, I, I, having read that sentence and thinking about, you know, a, a, a Trump White House and <laughs> this sort of scenario we're in, but also just in digital culture and how we see things and what's cool on Instagram or just in right. general, I think this idea of shock and awe and the thin line between the two. Yeah, I mean, look, this has always been a technique of bad art, <laughs> not just visual art, I mean, all forms of art, um, to do something that is just uh, shocking. And, you know, sometimes, there's a, sometimes we enjoy that. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of the stock and trade of the, the average horror movie or you know, and there's a lot of art um, that tries to, visual art that tries to get some traction by doing something that's um, shocking by pushing the envelope. That's not what I meant, of course. But right, I think awe is something much more profound and requires a much deeper kind of um, act of, of uh, sacrifice and, and uh, doing something that's a lot more difficult. Mm. Both, both to both to do and to to interpret. Yeah, you know, look, it. We will look back on in an interview in, in which we're complaining about all the, you know, all the social media stuff now is quaint in the same way. I'm sure you could also extract from a book from 15 years ago quaint stuff too. But it is definitely the case now that um, there is 
a desire, you said Instagram, it's true on all forms of social media, um, to find some, you know, uh, to stick your head above the, 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 the crowd. And the easiest way to do that is to do something outrageous. That has always been the case because there's so much noise now and, the, you know, as the crowd is so big, it's, it's hard to do that without doing something even more appalling. And, you know, that's really not interesting in the end. Um, but but we've drifted by the very nature of having that conversation away from, I think, what, what creativity is about um, because that's really not where the creative act is uh, takes place. Yeah. And in this age of convenience, there was another section in the book that I found really kind of compelling. And you're kind of just talking about how we ignore all these small little miracles around us. You say convenience comes at a price. And then just shortly after that, the world's full of small miracles accessible to all of us at almost any time if we're prepared to look for them. In this world of sort of visual noise, do you think it's becoming harder to look for such miracles? And 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 are 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 there a lot of people still out there? You think kind of capturing this is is this something? Well, that... look, I mean, part of the my point there was, and I believe this deeply. In a way, the whole point of the book was um, we we need to see the world with open eyes. Um, that means we need to think openly about received ideas. We need to see each other openly. Um, and we need to just see what's around us, that there is, in fact, an enormous amount of beauty and invention and novelty and and just fascination in in things that are constantly around us, but on some level which we which we can't, which we're blind to because we're used to seeing things in a certain way or we're distracted. Uh, here's a tiny, probably not terribly good example, but if you. If you've ever walked down the street with a very small child and you're, say, going somewhere um, and you're noticing you're distracted on your phone or you're noticing, you know, whether the light's changing or whatever, the normal thing to how late you are or whether you have the tickets to the event, the child is often seeing an entirely different world, which is also there. The airplane stream in the sky, the the uh, bottle tops that are on the ground, a balloon that's drifting in the air. It's as if that child occupies, although it's the same space and time, a, a different reality with a number of small miracles. I remember when I was living in Berlin um, and I came back to New York and I was walking through my old neighborhood in the village with a guy who had lived upstairs from me. Um, he had never left. And I had come to feel that the village was a place that had been largely, well, destroyed, but in any case, dramatically changed by all the money and uh, redevelopment that had moved into the neighborhood. And when I had come back and walked around, I kind of um, saw all that new stuff. But walking around with him, he had not moved anywhere, and his routines had not changed over the years. It was as if I suddenly walked through some strange screen invisible screen into the world that I used to occupy. It was still there. Um, he saw the guy who was on the lawn chair outside the fruit stand who'd always been there. He saw the woman. We passed the um, the news stall where this grumpy lady had been since I was a little boy and sold me the newspaper that I would go pick up for my parents on Sunday mornings. The, the, it was as if a separate reality existed uh, layered over this one that I had come to see. And I think the world is full of those kinds of layers. It's a question of how open we are to, to seeing, seeing through other people's eyes. And that's certainly true of art. I think one of the things that art does, um, and one of the most profound aspects of modern art, which is, say, art of the last 50, 70 years, is to, uh, or more, is to open our eyes to the way in which seemingly everyday normal things um, have about them a beauty, a grace, a meaning um, that that we might ignore if we were not really attentive. It's interesting in, in hearing you describe that sort of analogy between the adult and the child. 
a lot of artists will say that they like to look at the world sort of through a child's eyes. Yeah. I think that's that's a conceit that's half true. <laughs> <laughs> we all look at children's drawings, for instance, and go, man, it would be great to, to do that. The idea is somehow to capture um, something about what seems the unencumbered uh, directness of those drawings, but to channel it. Mm. Um, and I, yes, I think I think that idea is part of what artists are looking for. How do you how do you see things that other people see in a way that lets them lets other people see it afresh or differently? And look, as a critic, that's part of the job too to somehow take something that people um, may not have thought a lot about or may have thought about in one way and open them up to the idea that there may be other ways of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, At least open them up to the idea that a debate about this thing is in itself a healthy, useful way of talking about the thing, the world, our relationship to each other, and so forth. So you're primarily covering art from 1990 until, you know, around 2007 and, and go to Berlin late that year where you kind of transitioned more to a cultural role where you're covering many different sort of realms around Europe and the Middle East. What was that transition like for you having having spent, you know, uh, the better part of two decades, almost, you know, 17 years covering this very specific world, and then all of a sudden kind of planting yourself on a different continent uh, and looking at things outside of the realm of public art, galleries, museums. Well, so, you know, as I said, I fell into my job as an art critic. I think there are people for whom it's quite understandably their life's ambition and the art world is their world. And that was never really me. I I um I have friends who are artists and I dealers and creators I love and but I was never really at home in the art world, the truth be told. Um and part of that was a feeling that I wanted to write about the world in a larger way. I, I talked earlier about my childhood, my background, and the art world is a it's a fascinating place, but it it's also kind of a bubble. So I felt increasingly um frustrated, I'll be honest. Um, and I was trying to find ways to write about art that would open it up and open the discussion uh, to a larger audience, um, which wasn't necessarily the art world. And that that put me sometimes a little odds with the conversation in the art world. But the book you described, Accidental Masterpiece, was both of them, frankly, were were attempts to do that. But over the years, I, I was constantly restless. And so I was writing more and more for the New York Review of Books. Um, and trying to find ways to, writing a lot for the Times Magazine, trying to find ways to write my way out of what I was doing. Um, privileged and grateful though I was, I don't just say that, I, I was not deluded, I, I had a great job. But I also thought, look, I'd gotten it when I was very young, it's not the only thing I could do. So when I went to Europe in a way I had already a foot out the door, and the times I thought, think, thought, look, I mean, he's just let him go for a year or something, and then he'll come back and he'll get this out of his system. But, but I had a kind of idea of what I wanted to do, and it was to write a column that essentially looked at politics and social affairs across Europe and the Middle East through a cultural lens. Sometimes the cultural aspect of it was hard to discern, but. Um, that was the basic idea. And it got back to my very first interests in how culture is a way to um, talk about the world at, at large. And I loved doing that. I I felt much more at home doing that in a way than I had felt as an art critic because uh, I loved getting out and about and talking to people. I loved collaborating um, with people. I had to do that in countries where I didn't speak the language. Mm-hmm. It was a somewhat rootless job. You know, you are a thing in the public's eye, such as the public cares, if you're the art critic of the times. If you're writing one week of, about life under Hamas in uh, in Gaza and another week about, uh, you know, culture under Putin and another thing about 
uh, negritude in France, people don't really necessarily have any idea what you're doing <laughs> or read more than the thing that they're interested in. And so for me, it was wonderful, but I think it also uh, seemed like a hiatus um, for some people who had known me in one role for a long time. Yeah, um, almost like a sabbatical from being a critic. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it in a voice, and that was also very important to me. I haven't really talked to you that much about this, but look, the, the, the through line for me, creatively speaking, is how to be a good writer. I mean, I, I think the essential role of a critic, in a, in a way, is to develop a voice so that people want to read you um, and and so that they know where you're coming from. And it's an art to write uh, as a critic well. That's the art that I devoted myself, have devoted myself to. And so this was a way of elaborating on that voice. So I did not think that it was really different. I had as a critic often written profiles or written other things which were outside the straight review form. For some people, that was considered weird. Um, I just saw it as uh, another way of exercising one's voice. So I didn't see it so much as giving up my role as a critic, whatever that means. Mm. Um, I didn't really care. I just thought it was uh, trying to write in a way that's personal. Um, but yes, in terms of a strict sort of the way we pigeonhole jobs and have ideas of what people do or are supposed to do, it, it was outside the box. And I actually, if I may say, think that that's what made that job uh, creative and, and interesting. Mm. Um, it's what differentiated it from the normal foreign correspondence job or from a normal critic's job. And as a result, it fell between stools, but I think it also produced some interesting things. And for me, it was very exciting. And you lived in Berlin during this time. Why did why Berlin and, and also connected to that? What was your experience there like? What did you learn from your years in Berlin? Well, I chose Berlin for many reasons, some of them quite practical, um, moving with a family. Um, but I also chose it because it was seemed to me the most interesting city to, to be in. It was not London or Paris, and especially a publication like The Times, Times to get, tends to get rutted in the sort of touristic uh, conversations about what's happening in London or Paris. I wanted to be away from that. It was also moving east. And so it was uh, central to Europe, but that also included Eastern Europe. Um, I love Berlin. <laughs> so I I think it was, I thought about many other places. I mean, I went through ridiculous sort of real estate, um, you know, explorations and conversations and you wouldn't believe where. But um, Berlin was always sort of the most logical place. I I'm, I'm really loved it there. It's a very, you know, it has a reputation of being a place where 20-somethings would love to go and, you know, party and pretend to be artists. But the truth is it's an incredibly, it's an incredibly humane, um, comfortable, uh, decent place to live. And uh, the people I came to know there, I, I adored. Um, and... I think, you know, outside New York, it also proved to me that you can have a very full, rich, actually rather sane life without being here, <laughs> which for, for a native New Yorker was a healthy thing. Yeah. Did did you view that time on some level or ever ex expect or, or think that it may lead you toward the architecture critic role? No, I wasn't thinking specifically about that. Um, you know, I had always had a interest in architecture going back to my days at ID and even even before. Um, and I'd studied architecture and history in graduate school and so forth. But I, I hadn't aspired to that job. I no, I had had other ideas about how I would move on to, and and the paper was, the newspaper was. Uh, had discussions with me about, you know, maybe taking this act from Berlin to Asia or something. But um, when they asked if I would do the architecture job, I I thought about it. Um, 
I didn't just immediately say yes, but I did have an idea of how I would do that job. And it was a moment that seemed opportune. Um, and honestly, that kind of moment doesn't occur very often um, in one's life, if ever. So I saw that it was something I, I should do, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. And and that was in 2011. You fought, You were the fifth critic at the paper, and after Ada Louise Huxtable, Paul Goldberger, Herbert Munchamp, and Nikolai Urasov. In terms of your process as a critic, um, and this question's in connection to time, how do you project for the future? Because you're looking at architects who are doing just that, so I'm curious, how do you identify an architect's intent and, and recognize change that's happening at large around that? So sort of this idea of intent-based criticism. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know if I think about things that way. I do think that, as with all art, but certainly as with all architecture, intent and result are very often not the same thing. And I think that's one of the most fascinating and often beautiful things about architecture is that if it has value, it evolves as the society evolves around it. I mean, there are famous historical examples, the Pantheon or something, but it's even true. We're also sitting right now not close to some tower in the park housing projects, and they began out of a certain idea about the city, um, the decline of the city, the failure of historical architecture uh, as it was declining with the city. And over time, those buildings have come to look rather different. Some of them, in fact, are highly desirable now, even though that form of architecture was widely discredited, especially discredited by Jane Jacobs in the early 60s. So this is actually a roundabout way of saying the intent of that architecture is one thing. Um, and the the context out of which it was born is one thing. But of course, it has come to have different lives because it can have different uses over time. So mm. those Tower in the Park projects, some of them have become wonderful places for retirees to live because they have some green space, they have elevators, um, they have some community areas. They had not been intended as uh, retirement communities, but that is basically... Um, what they have become. Mm. That's fascinating, I think. Um, architects can anticipate certain amount of change and try to see the way um, architects and planners, urban designers and so forth, uh, see the way cities or communities are evolving. But in the end, you're building something that you hope continues to have some value, uh, even if the circumstances have changed. Mm. Another thing connected to the the sort of craft of your work is the pace at which you do it. And uh, yeah, I noticed sort of on average, since you've become critic, it's about one story a month. How do you sort of approach what you're doing in terms of time, in terms of thinking about the, the reporting, the writing, the research? It's very different than going to, say, walk into a museum and review an exhibition. You're going to Medellin, Colombia or Quito, Ecuador. And and having to sort of understand a place in very deep terms in order to write about it in a, a critical context. What's that process uh, for you? And and how have you kind of come to this sort of pace? I mean, that I, I've never counted. Um, and I, if you add it up, I, I, um, I suspect the numbers is a little distorted because, for instance, last year I spent... All of my, almost all of my time, not all of it really, but a lot of it on the uh, year before last, I should say, on a big project about climate and uh, and global cities. That was a, a Pulitzer finalist. Yeah. And so that is obviously a year plus long project that produces five giant things and they're very labor intensive. So the pace varies. When I started in this job, I wrote at a much uh, faster clip. But you're absolutely right. Um, the... So one of the differences between art or music job or, for that matter, movies or TV is that it it involves tremendous triage. I mean, if you're the art critic, basically you're, you and your colleagues are covering every major show or you're trying to and 
so everyone's practicing some triage, but with architecture, there are a million things that happen every day, new buildings, new plans, new. So a lot of my job, I think, is trying to select the things that speak to something larger than just themselves. And then you're not just walking in and trying to suss out what the show is like and learn a little bit about the artist, let's say. You, you're dealing with projects that are often very complex. Um, and if I think if you want to write about them in a meaningful way, you're trying to situate them in a, in, in a larger context too. So I wrote the other day about the uh, Strand bookstore. Um, a straight-up way of doing that would be to say, you know, the Strand is – the building is up for landmark status and it should or shouldn't get it and leave it at that. I think it actually opened up a whole other conversation, which is part of where we are now as a city, about how we preserve – what the meaning of landmarks are, mm -hmm. uh, what the meaning is of, of a landmark – if it extends beyond the architecture um, or the place to the things that are happening there. So that can be, that can include shops, uh, local legacy, bodegas and bookstores and so forth. What, what do we really mean when we talk about preserving things? What is it we want to preserve when we're talking about the culture of a city? The Strand brings that up. So to write something like that, you have to be responsible, of course, to these issues which are complicated um, just on the landmark side of the building, but then also, I think, to raise these issues. So that's the way I've approached this. I, I would say that I have on my lists a million things I want to do. And every day, and I don't mean this just as a phrase, I mean literally every day, at least one or two new things come up that I'm, I feel responsible to doing and I will not get to. Yeah, and there's of course the challenge with it being the New York Times. So you, you, you know, you're you have to cover the home turf, but it's also a global paper. And I've written down here a list of all the locations that you've reported from since starting the role in 2011, and it includes Madrid, Rome, Ronchamp, France, Miami, Bogota, and Medellin in Colombia, Louisville, Kentucky, Oakland, Amsterdam, Naples, Italy, Stuttgart, Baghdad, Port-au-Prince, <laughs> Haiti. Zatari Refugee Camp in Jordan, Al-Fawar in West Bank, Detroit, Mexico City, Jackson, Mississippi, Chicago, Houston, Texas, Erie, Pennsylvania, Charleston. <laughs> I could go on. You'd be shocked at how bad I am at keeping a frequent flyer mile. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I had to bring up travel because it's one of those things. I Just the fact that uh, you've been to all these places and seen them in through the lens in which you're seeing them, which is is as this architecture critic, uh, and pretty much the most important post in the the field at the most important paper. I mean, it it some think it's the failing New York Times, but <laughs> look, I so I have to say several things. First of all, um, I, let me reiterate: it's been a, an incredible privilege. Um, to have a career in which I've been able to travel so much. And I, I cannot lie. It's been one of the great joys of this job. But why do I like it? It's not, um, it's, it's not for the frequent flyer miles. It's, it's because for me, it's been an opportunity to really uh, see places in ways that one doesn't do as a tourist, um, to meet a million people, to hear their voices and understand what they are thinking and talking about. Um, I, 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 I can hardly begin to tell you how a profound um, a, that it has been for me. And to then to somehow convey that is the job. So I think, you know, in all of these cases, it's not just about covering the globe. <laughs> it's about finding examples of things that will resonate beyond... Louisville or Medellin or the uh, refugee camp in Jordan, because I think all of those things represent something larger than themselves. And that's what I meant about triage. But I also think that the field is such that we need to learn lessons and we need to look beyond our uh, immediate um, surroundings. New York has been a place, of course, which I write about all the time. And I could just do this job only writing about New York, of course. But I think New York allows me, in a sense, to get down to the level of the curb 
and the sidewalk. And sometimes it's possible if you go someplace else to look from a little more of a, you know, 30,000 feet. Um, Though it's very important, I think, as a writer, especially when you're dealing with the social um, role of the built world, to always ground what one is doing in uh, the experiences of the people uh, who built, but also are using uh, the things you're writing about. Mm. So never really 30,000 feet as in completely disconnected. Um, And, you know, just to answer this, question you may not have asked. I, I not long ago wrote about the, the, the Gilets jaunes in, in, uh, in France. And although that's technically not architecture, of course, for me, the, the, ro- the way in which the protests in France have evolved and the growing in part sparked by protests over a uh, gasoline tax um, opened up to me an issue about the way France had been planned and evolved and grew, a physical question about the way the country is laid out and what social and economic impact that had had. And so to me, that's part of my purview as well, um, that if you look at the world, if you look at the landscape, the built world as a kind of text of the social and economic effects and the the ta- as a tapestry essentially of social, uh, cultural, and economic things, then writing about those social economic things in the context of the build world is a very natural thing to do. So I didn't even think of something like that as being um, a kind of time out. Mm-hmm. I see it as an extension of the larger task of the job. I wanted to finish this interview with a with a tougher question. Which is how and when you decide to come come out guns blazing? Um, there's there's three examples that I, I, I came to mind when I was sort of researching for this interview, and and one was when you wrote about the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, uh, which you you said is entering an oversized plumbing fixture to commune with classic modern art is like hearing Bach played by a man wearing a clown suit. <laughs> and uh, yeah. with Calatrava, Santiago Calatrava's Oculus at the World Trade Center, you described as an epic boondoggle and described Calatrava himself as a one-trick pony. Of the vessel here at Hudson Yards by Thomas Heatherwick, you most recently described it as about as much like... Uh, <laughs> basically comparing comparing it uh to to a uh, wastebasket of sorts and and I uh, I, I think it's this idea of being very critical and and also pressing hard when do you decide to do that because it's not that often these are three examples out of you know 100 plus stories you've done yeah I mean um so I also said earlier and I believe it's true that one always has to remember that, you know, as I said about the creative endeavor, that people are putting their souls and hearts and souls on the line. And I think that's true. And as a critic, especially for a publication that is so widely read um, and whose reputation I also need to uh, represent, um, one doesn't say too many cavalier insulting things and one never does it without a reason. Um, so I, I think being selective uh, also makes the impact of those things um, more useful. And there has to be some reason beyond just you don't like it. Uh, it's a cheap trick to come up with something really uh, insulting and that people like it, but it, I don't. it doesn't wear well. And look, I said earlier, you can come out and say strong things as a critic, or you can sort of learn how to do your job. That was something I felt early on. I I still, in a way, feel you have to pick your shots carefully. So in all of those cases, uh, there was some underlying issue. I mean, in the case of the Calatrava train station, you know, it, it, it was an incredibly costly venture for the city and for taxpayers, uh, which pro- basically produced a shopping mall. Um, and I think that New York did not, uh, taxpayers did not benefit from that. If it had just been a project that had been in the middle of the countryside, I wouldn't have written about it. The vessel is on what passes for uh, public, should be on what passes for public land, but it really isn't 
much more than a, a drop-off for a shopping mall. And so again, I feel that there is somehow the the um, a swindle for the public that's involved here. And I find it particularly uh, annoying to be sold a bill of goods about the creative uh, novelty of these things when in fact um, they're just not that interesting. And sometimes they're actually downright awful. So I think there has to be a reason why you uh, wield that particular cudgel. But I, let me say something else, which I, I think, look, I, I hope I haven't been pontificating too much, but I, I do think this job has a use uh, in promoting ideas about what we could build and how we should build. Um, I don't see the role of this role as being simply to to respond to what's out there. I see it as much more of an activist role, and I, I've treated it that way for, for better or worse. And what that means is that I myself have goals, which is how can we build a more equitable, more beautiful, better cities and societies? And while that sounds Pollyannish, we do it incrementally. And I think architecture design, landscape design, and so forth, they're all critical to this. So at the heart of what I write mostly, and I think this affects this question you're asking about how much up and down writing I write, is a, something, it is an optimism or a hope or, a, or an idea of moving towards something better. You know, there's, we're very skeptical of progress these days, but in, in many ways, uh, there is a larger sense in which we are making progress in the world. And I think even in the Hudson Yards piece that I wrote, there is embedded within it a notion about what a better neighborhood could be, what a better run city could be. So I think that's what I also hope people take away from what I do, a, a sense of hope and a, a goal, not just, you know, um, the, the occasional nasty pleasure of schadenfreude or, or finding someone who agrees that the thing you hate, they also hate too. That, that's fine. But um, there is something that one can achieve here, this public conversation about how to make a better society and how to move forward our civil welfare. Um, so as inflated and crazy as that goal is, it, in, it informs a little, in the back of my mind, you know, a little bit of everything I, I write, and I, I hope somehow it's, it's useful and comes across. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. This is great. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Slowdown.tv.